Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dialexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shravasava, and I'm your host. And today we have with us Dr. Dustin Crummett, who is currently a part time lecturer at both the University of Washington Tacoma and Seattle Pacific University, and previously a postdoctoral researcher at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Uh, His work is broadly focused on applied ethics, social and political philosophy, and philosophy of religion. Hi, Dr. Kermit. How are you today? I'm all right. I'm right. How are you? Good. I'm good as well. Thank you for your time today uh, and for being here. Um, Before we begin our discussion, although I kind of just gave a little bit about your CV, um, for our audience that may not know a lot about you, uh, could you please provide a little bit more information on who you are, um, your background, and your relationship to philosophy? What got you interested in philosophy, and um, what does it mean to you? Oh, yeah. So what got me interested in philosophy? I guess I would say I've, in a way, I've almost always been interested in philosophy. I mean, you think about questions about how should people live, or what would a just society look like, or uh, does God exist, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, I was kind of always just naturally interested in those. And then at a certain point, I realized like, wait a minute, there's actually a specific field that addresses these. Um, and then I kind of thought, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm really interested in them anyway, maybe I, maybe I should just go into that field and try to do it as well as I can. Um, so that's kind of what got me interested in, in philosophy, I suppose, um, was, you know, this interest that I just kind of naturally had in these questions. Um, so I majored in uh, I majored in philosophy, um, and I got a PhD from Notre Dame a couple years ago. Uh, then I spent um, uh, a couple years in Germany as a postdoctoral researcher in Munich, um, and uh, now I'm out here in the Pacific Northwest uh, teaching. So um, it is a very you know it's a very hard field. Um, the the academic job market's very bad. Um, so, you know, I don't necessarily advise people to, to make it a profession just because probably the market's going to get worse over time. Um, but, you know, I've, I've done some stuff that I think was kind of cool. Um, I had a, a co-authored applied ethics book that came out a little bit ago. Uh, so it's called Applied Ethics and Impartial Introduction. People can, people can find that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've, I've actually gotten this tip from a lot of other people that I've interviewed that like the job market is really, really bad. Um, yeah. So like, you know, they, they just say like, if you have interest, just kind of like explore it. But if you're like really good at it, then obviously go for it, but always have a plan B is what I've heard as a rec- recommendation. I did want to ask you um, like whether or not you had an interest, because I know you, you said that you had an interest from an early age, but did you ever get to explore philosophy, like dedicated philosophy at a high school level? Or was that just something that you learned could be a philosophy, like a major in, in college? Mm. Um, so I read, uh, one of my teachers actually gave me a book called Sophie's World when I was in high school, which is kind of a philosophy for young people. It's a novel, but it's about philosophy and it's meant to sort of get young people interested in philosophy. Uh, so that was the closest thing I had to exposure to philosophy in, in high school. Um, I uh, Really, I wanted to be like a novelist at that point because I was interested in philosophical questions and thought, ah, you can kind of address them through literature. Uh, but then when I went to college, I took a philosophy class and I was like, well, if really what I'm interested in is the, is the philosophical questions. Why not just write stuff directly about those rather than trying to do a literary thing as an excuse to talk about philosophical questions? So, um, yeah, but no, I didn't have any like classes or any kind of formal exposure to it um, before I got to, to college. And I think that's like kind of the common theme for a lot of people that get into philosophy is that they don't have, they have always like an interest in it or like some sort of questioning of the world or something like that. And then they get the actual experience or they at least figure out that's an actual major in college and then explore it. So that's like definitely really interesting. Kind of see how like, it's a really similar story for everyone. I've actually met very few people who are like, oh, okay, I had philosophy in high school and I continued it throughout. So like, that's definitely really interesting. 
Um, I want to move on to our discussion today, which is going to be about abortions. So a brief content warning for all of our listeners. Since we'll, we will be discussing abortions, the entire topic uh, may be sensitive. Uh, so I just wanted to let that let that be known. Um, but with that being said, let's get started. Um, the abortion debate is one that has created a polarized America um, with the Democrats and the lefts most frequently supporting something called pro-choice um, and the rights and the Republican most frequently supporting something known as pro-life. Could you explain the history of these terms, uh, what they mean, as well as the history of abortion debate overall, starting from the Roy versus uh, Wade court case? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, pro-choice people think that uh, uh, abortion should be legal, and so they think people should have the choice to get an abortion. Pro-life people think that abortion should be illegal, and so they view that as we're protecting the life of uh, of the unborn uh, of the unborn child. They often say, um, and uh, so that's where the terms come from. Of course, there are kind of shades of gray. I mean, there are you know pro-choice people who think, well, maybe later in pregnancy, there should be some restrictions, but early on, you know, no restrictions, or there are pro-life people who think, you know, of course, there are some exceptions where you have to make abortion legal in certain special cases. And so there is variance there. Um, uh, in terms of history, I mean, so when really, you might even go back further than Roe v. Wade itself, when the country was founded, abortion was legal. Um, uh, and it had been in um, English common law, there was a tradition of not making abortion illegal until after quickening, which is when you can feel movement. Um, uh, in the 1800s, in both the US and in England, there was a movement uh, really to make abortion illegal at all stages of pregnancy. A lot of states passed their own laws against it. Um, so by the 1900s, abortion was kind of broadly illegal in the US. Then at Roe v. Wade, um, the court had established that the Constitution protected what they call the right to privacy, which is this right to make your own decisions, live your own life without interference, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they judged that uh, the right to privacy protects uh, the right to get an abortion. Um, and it's kind of interesting because that wasn't actually a partisan political issue yet at that point. Uh, there were kind of pro-life and pro-choice people in both parties. Um, most of the judges who ruled in favor of Roe v. Wade had been appointed by Republicans. Um, it was a seven to two decision. It wasn't split along party lines. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what Roe v. Wade held was that uh, you have a right, like states can't regulate abortion really in the first trimester and then they can do a little more regulation in the second trimester, and then they can do much more in the third trimester. Um, and after that point, it became, people started sorting along partisan lines. After that decision, after it was made broadly legal throughout the country, then uh, people began coalescing along partisan lines, and it became this very heated political issue. Um, there was another, uh, another court case in 1992, uh, called um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that's actually the case that established the current legal framework. So <clears throat> they got rid of <clears throat> the Roe framework where it's done by trimesters. And they said, okay, actually what matters is viability, the point where the fetus could survive on its own outside the womb. And they said, after that point, you can restrict abortion a lot. You still have to make exceptions for the health of the mother and this sort of thing. But uh, before that point, um, you can't make any laws that place an undue burden on the ability to get uh, an abortion. Um, and that's the legal framework that we've been in uh, for the past while. You know, Republican state legislatures have been trying to kind of push, push on that, find ways to restrict it that, you know, we can argue don't don't strictly speaking violate that standard, uh, but um, it looks now like the Supreme Court is just going to totally overrule both of those cases, and states will be able to just uh, make whatever laws they want, which will result in it becoming totally illegal in a lot of places. It looks like. 
Yeah, so could you actually talk a little bit more about that? So there was this like leakage of a like Supreme Court document that basically says that there's supposed to be like an overturn, uh, overturning of the Roe v. Uh, Wade case. So what exactly is that? Because as far as I'm aware, um, there normally aren't a leaks from the Supreme Court. B, they're also like, I mean, this hasn't been, it's not official. Um, some people think it's official, but it's not official. So what does it necessarily mean? Uh, is there still a possibility that it's not actually going to get overturned? Um, and like, what, what exactly is this? Yeah, so what the leak suggests is that right now, the way the justices are lined up, uh, if nobody changes their mind, it will get overturned. Um, it could be, now it's still a few months until the official decision is like officially, officially codified, right? So it could be that someone switches sides, some justice who currently is going to sign on to the opinion overturning it might switch to um, an opinion probably that John Roberts, who's the chief justice, would write that would most likely, um, so the case at issue is this law in uh, Missouri that um, restricts abortion after 15 weeks. Most likely what he wants is something that would let that stand so it would push the point back, but not totally eliminate the uh, protections for abortion early in pregnancy. Uh, so it would be, you know, I guess the the more compromised position or whatever. It could be that someone will switch sides um, and that will be the decision. Uh, probably not, but it's possible. Um, the leak, I mean, clearly the leak was done for some sort of political reason, right? The leak was done either by a liberal wanting, oh, there will be a public backlash and maybe that will encourage people, someone to switch, right? Or maybe by a conservative thinking, oh, once we leak it, you know, then if somebody switches, it will look like they came to public pressure and they can't do that. So really, if we leak it now, we can lock everybody in um, and prevent anybody from switching. And there are a million different theories and there's an investigation trying to figure out who leaked it and you know, I mean, who knows at this point, but somebody leaked it somehow trying to affect what the final decision is going to be, um, which is very unusual. Okay, yeah, that's definitely really interesting. And um, I guess kind of unfortunate as well that like such a big decision is like, seen, I guess, in the terms of like, locking it in or something or like even like caving into public pressure. That's kind of a, there's a lot on the line for not just the justices, but a lot of exactly everyone in America, because it does affect almost everyone in America. I do want to like backtrack a little bit on kind of this bipartisan issue how, and how mm. abortion became a bipartisan issue um, and like what some basic argumentations are for each side. So I know that like personally you have your own opinions on abortion um, and those can be whether or not, you know, I think there are like religious reasons for, for abortion uh, and to be on one specific side. Um, and there's maybe like probably pragmatic reasons as well. So what are the, some of like the basic argumentations on each side, the pro-life versus uh, pro-choice? Um, and like how, what are some tactics used to like get more people to rally for, for one side or the other? Right, yeah. So I think, I mean, just talking about how it became a, a partisan issue, um, you know, it wasn't totally just because of people thinking about philosophical arguments, right? It was because of intentional decisions to, okay, we need to get our people to rally around this. And, uh, you know, I mean, there were Republican political strategists who consciously attempted to make this, a, a, you know, a, a divisive issue, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, but in terms of what the actual philosophical arguments are, um, I think um, basically, so I mean, on, on the pro-choice side, um, there are kind of two ways of arguing for the pro-choice view and they could be complementary in some way. And one focuses on the interests and the bodily autonomy of the pregnant person. And the other focuses on the moral status of the fetus. So one way to argue is to say, well, look, um, uh, you have a right to control your body. Um, even if the fetus is a person like us, uh, that doesn't, Judith Jarvis Thompson has this very famous paper where she argues the right to life is not the right to use someone else's body in a, an invasive and burdensome way. Um, and so uh, she argues really, um, 
abortion is more like if say you were hooked up to someone uh, against your will and they were using your body to survive, you know, they need to filter their blood through your kidneys. It would, she thinks it would be permissible to unplug them, even if that means they'll die. Uh, even though that person has a right to life, that's not a right to the use of your body. Um, and that argument is very controversial among philosophers, whether it, it can work on the assumption that the fetus is a person or not. Um, there's a book called Beyond Roe by David Boonin, where he defends this argument that came out a couple years ago. Um, the other way is to argue, well, the fetus, at least early on, is not, uh, you know, doesn't have the same sort of moral importance that we have. Um, and there are kind of two ways to go about that. You might think, okay, we do begin to exist at conception, uh, but uh, we don't have kind of full moral status yet. We're not persons yet. In order to get that, you need to have some level of cognitive development. And there are different ways of, you know, different accounts of what that might be. It's tricky because you don't want to like rule out infants and so forth, but uh, there are different accounts of what that might be. Um, and then the other way to argue is to argue, actually, maybe we don't begin to exist at conception. Um, maybe we don't begin to exist until later. So what begins to exist at conception maybe is my body or my organism. Um, but you might think, well, that's not me. What I am is my mind. And my mind didn't begin to exist until, you know, a certain level of brain development had happened. Um, and so maybe I didn't exist until the capacity for consciousness developed or something like that. And then before that point, uh, you know, there couldn't be any anyone there to have full moral status because I didn't exist yet, right? Um, and then on the pro-life side, um, basically what people are going to do is, first of all, try to argue against the, the Judith Jarvis Thompson autonomy style argument. They'll say, yeah, of course you have a right to bodily autonomy, but uh, that doesn't justify abortion, assuming that the fetus has full moral status. Um, and then they'll try to argue that the fetus has full moral status, or at least whatever makes it wrong to kill you or me also applies to the fetus. Um, so for instance, there's this famous argument by the philosopher Don Marquis, where he says, um, look, what makes it wrong to kill you or me? Well, the main, the main thing is that it deprives us of the rest of our lives, right? It deprives you of a valuable future. Um, and then if you assume that we begin to exist at conception, while the fetus has a valuable future that it will lose if you get an abortion. And so he wants to argue, okay, that's sufficient to make uh, abortion wrong. Um, so uh, those are kind of the, I mean, as you might anticipate, the main issues turn on the pregnant person's right to bodily autonomy, the fetus's moral standing and right to life, how, what each of those exactly is, how you balance those, um, et cetera. That definitely makes sense. And I, I think it's also kind of interesting the way in which um, there's a lot of different philosophical concepts that come together when we're talking about uh, abortion, like not just like uh, talking about the moral status of the fetus, which can delve into like consciousness research, um, but also like on like the bodily autonomy of the person who's hosting the baby, right? So there's a lot of different fields of of, of research and philosophy that are all coming together to kind of explain this topic, um, which is really cool to cool to see. Um, I am curious, though, because we are talking about like these philosophical considerations, which I think at a political level, um, personally, what I see, what I feel is that a lot of people don't go that deep into it. It's a lot of feeling based like uh, like uh, support. So like I feel this specific way and that's why I want to support a specific side. So in that in, because of that, I'm curious if philosophy like the research that you know you guys are all doing like the great philosophers and on, on on abortions in general i wonder if that's even taken into account in legal considerations like i've heard from so many past guests that like philosophy really needs to be taken like more more, more seriously um is there like a real big problem here like and do you like even see a future in which like there there could be incorporation of these philosophical lenses because from from what I've seen in the past it seems almost that we get like into this really heated argument and there's just no kind of like 
almost no adherence to like the facts, like the research that's being done. It's almost always feelings based. So how yeah. do you guys like sort through that? And, and what do you, what do you really think about that situation? Yeah. Yeah. So it is, there is a big disconnect between the kinds of conversations that philosophers have and the kinds of conversations that happen in the public discourse, I think. Um, where yeah, it's it's people go by gut reactions and focus just on insulting the other side rather than trying to argue about the issue at hand and you know change the subject to other things all the time. Um, so the quality of, of public discourse is not not so good. Um, uh, I do think I mean philosophers have influenced it some. So for instance, Judith Jarvis Thompson's paper that I mentioned, where she gives this example about you're hooked up to this person, and um, that's that's a famous enough paper that you you do actually hear people in ordinary conversations sometimes talking about it. Maybe they don't know that it's from Judith Jarvis Thompson's paper, but um, or. Uh, this this embryo rescue case that I think you're going to ask about a little bit later. Sometimes you'll find people on Twitter talking about this this embryo rescue case. Um, so yeah, some some of the stuff that philosophers say does filter down, um, but um, you know, and then that at least indirectly affects the law because it affects maybe how people vote or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's true that it's true that. Um, there is a very big difference between how the public debate goes and how philosophical debate goes. And um, yeah, what can we do about that? Maybe nothing. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just, you know, human nature and the nature of partisan politics mean that once people are sorted, it's just very hard to, to get, you know, productive conversations going or anything like that. Um, I, you know, we're also, we're going to talk about this paper I wrote, which, which attempts to, um, you know, seed some, like, for the sake of argument, assume that the pro-life view is true, but still argue that maybe some of the political implications don't follow, you know, maybe that could be a way forward if we can find some sort of common ground that sidesteps the more philosophical issues that, you know, but, I mean, you know, it, it is, yeah, it's hard, it's hard. Yeah, and I, I feel like sometimes it can it can almost be really frustrating too because like, you know, philosophy is an area where you know the the goal is kind of just to ask more questions, right? I feel like philosophy it's in itself is not really made to find answers, but to find more questions, right? And so like often it can be kind of annoying or like even upsetting that like there's actual implications that can harm people that are not being looked at um, into yeah. deep consideration. But, you know, I want to move on to talk a little bit more about like this, uh, this concept of morality and how people can can like feel this um, about different opinions. Right. So I understand how it can be immoral to have an abortion. And that can be by whatever reason, either like the status of the fetus or like whatever, um, whatever justification. But I'm interested in, in understanding what the tipping point is uh, to where one will try to prevent others from enacting immoral acts like so let's say for the sake of example um i believe that abortion is immoral at what point do i say that i now need to prevent others from committing this act um that i see to be like very heinous and immoral mm -hmm. yeah so um i i guess yeah so there are lots of things that are immoral or morally problematic that we don't outlaw right uh if i promise to help you move and then I decide to play video games instead. I've done something wrong, but it's not illegal, right? Um, or if I make a mean comment about your outfit, I've done something wrong, but that's not illegal, right? Um, uh, I, I guess I would say, yeah, I mean, people disagree a bit about exactly what sorts of things should be illegal, but it is usually the case that, um, uh, in cases where I'm going to do something that's going to like unjustly harm your body or your property, something like that, we do think that you have um, a right to legal protection. Um, you know, if I'm gonna attack you or vandalize your stuff or try to steal something from you. Um, so I take it that is what the pro-life person is going to say is, well, this is a case where, you know, the life of the fetus is at stake. And so uh, surely the government should protect the right to life of citizens. And 
Um, so then that sort of pushes pushes us back into some of the moral questions uh, about, um, you know, is that really true? Does the fetus have a right to life? Would abortion violate it if it had one, et cetera? Um, there was a philosopher named Ronald Dworkin who defended this view. He wrote a book called Life's Dominion. Um, he, he thought, look, really, um, you know, an early fetus is not a person with interests and rights yet, but you might still think it has some sort of value just as an instance of, you know, because of like the sacredness of human life or something like that. And he thought in that case, you might think, yeah, there is a real ethical question about when it's okay to destroy this life. But uh, that's not one that the government should step in and decide because it's not an interest of, uh, it's not a matter of the fetus's rights or something like that. Um, so he, he hoped to kind of uh, make progress on this political stalemate by saying, look, you can hold a variety of ethical views while still agreeing that this should be left up to individuals and the government shouldn't step in to force people to make one decision rather than another one. Um, of course, how many people did he really convince? I guess not enough to diffuse the political issue, but. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think at, at the end of the day, it might also just boil down to question of human nature where, you know, we have like an innate tendency, I think, to convince others of our positions as well. Mm. And that could have probably led to it. But I'm also kind of like, and the, like, the next two questions are kind of be, are going to be tailored towards the political climate in, in a way. Mm. I'm curious on like why, uh, the question of a, over a woman's body has been subsumed by a political debate because it seems counterintuitive that we have like this supposed freedom uh, in our nation, but also equality among genders. Um, but then we're trying to restrict the freedom of women in making these decisions about their embryos. Um, and I'm learning, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in knowing why that's the case, right? I mean, there, there could also be scenarios like, um, like, I mean, I don't really know what the, the counter scenario would be for men, but like there wouldn't really like there hasn't been any scenario where there's like a limiting of, of, of something that's happening to the man, right? Where where is it? Why is it happening to the woman in this scenario? Hmm. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it it will be, I guess maybe there are two two different readings, right? One reading is just well, it's because of sexism, and it's where we have a sexist society, and so. People want to control women, control their reproductive ability, et cetera. Um, I guess a pro-life person will say, well, but, you know, abortion is a case where, of course, the pregnant person's interests are at stake, but also the fetuses. And, you know, I, as a pro-life person, believe that uh, uh, the fetus is a person and is going to be unjustly killed by abortion. And so they'll say, well, the law has to step in here to, um, to, uh, uh, protect the interests of this other individual who, uh, which are at stake, right? Um, now, there is a question, again, about, yeah, are there any parallels? Um, and how would we handle, if we can find parallels, how would we handle that in other cases? Um, so David Boonin, who I mentioned in this book, Beyond Row, um, he gives the example of bone marrow donation. So there was actually a court case some decades ago where one guy needed a bone marrow donation to survive. And he, uh, he, he like, I think his cousin or someone was, was the only match. And um, his cousin didn't want to donate. And so he took him to court, wanted the court, make him give me bone marrow. And the court said, no, we can't, we can't make this guy give you bone marrow, right? Um, and Boonin thinks, okay, maybe that's an analog for pregnancy. This guy didn't have to let this other person, uh, you know, take his bone marrow and even though he needed it to survive. Right. Um, and maybe in a similar way, the woman doesn't have, it shouldn't be, at least shouldn't be legally forced to let the fetus use her body in order to survive. Now, of course you might think maybe there are other disanalogies, um, uh, you know, such that someone could say, well, maybe the bone marrow case is not like pregnancy. And so, you know, we're not really being inconsistent. And Boonin has arguments about why the disanalogies are not really disanalogies and other people disagree. And so there are a lot more things to be said, of course. Um, but That's interesting. Um, and, you know, I think it's just kind of given the current like recent events, it's kind of interesting the way in which uh, pro-lifers have such a strong opinion on this. But like, they also have like 
relatively low opinions on other facets that are killing life. So it's it's kind of interesting on like how there's like a pro-life in one scenario, but like no pro-life in other scenarios and kind of like a contradiction there. But um, yeah. I'm also curious. Of course, that wouldn't, yeah. that wouldn't mean that they were wrong. Uh, yeah. and they're pro-life you right it might mean that they're hypocritical or that yeah. some of them maybe don't have good motivations or something like that um yeah but... definitely i don't i don't think by any means that there like there's, a, there's anything wrong but i just think it's interesting to see how that how that how that plays down because there's almost like a forgotten like they all it's like almost the justifications used to back one thing are like completely hypocritical of what they're using to back yeah. another thing I, I think which is that's just often true yeah yeah but I'm curious about like the the way in which um, you know we kind of talked about this and how there's like a maybe like a, a reading that there could be like some sexism. But is that also the reason for why maybe we're seeing a lot of men advocating for strong uh, like positions on the topic of abortion? Because that affects mainly, I mean, women. I mean, I don't want to say that it doesn't affect men at all. I mean, there's the consideration of the man who's the father. There's also the consideration of who's taking care of it, etc. There's a lot of other nuances, but. For the large part, there is the fact that the, the fetus is relying on the woman to to, to be nurtured, right? So why aren't there like more women at like the forefront of these discussions? And if there are, why are there some of the largest voices that we hear from men? Um, and almost as if like they're like, I know there's definitely listings of, of women, but considering how like there's been a lot of rhetoric, uh, you know, about how men are, are, are making these decisions and very, very strong positions on these uh, on these topics. So why is that necessarily the case? Is it based on that same reading of, of sexism or are there other other opinions? Yeah, I think probably, you know, we live in a society that is, you know, has background sexism. And so it turns out that men tend to hold most of the political offices and most of the high profile media positions and that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it winds up just on most issues, most of the people talking are men because they're the ones who are, have, have more of a voice to begin with, right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably it. Um, in philosophy, you know, it's, it's, I mean, there are definitely some, some high profile um, uh, women philosophers who have written on this, people like Judith Jarvis Thompson or Margaret Little or Kate Greasley. Um, she had a, an interview with Ezra Klein on his podcast the other day that people can listen to if they want to hear what she has to say. Um, but philosophy also is a, a mostly male discipline right now, and that's because of background sexism in philosophy, probably. Um, so, you know, even in philosophy, that's, um, that, that can be true to some extent, though probably not so much as it is with just the, the public discourse. Um, Okay, that, that definitely makes sense. And I guess that's like kind of unfortunate given that there is so much sexism. Um, hopefully in the future, like that gets better. I mean, like, I don't think that that's like a sustainable um, kind of way to go about things. But I do want to move on to kind of discuss a little bit about your research specifically. Mm -hmm. So you have this forthcoming paper titled, um, Is Abortion the Only Issue? Um, where you discuss like, the embryo rescue case. Could you please explain what this case asks us to consider and what that means in the broader context of the pro-life versus pro-choice debate? Right. So um, the case asks you to imagine this sort of situation. You're in a fertility clinic and a fire has broken out and you know there are two hallways. Down one hallway is a child, let's say a five-year-old child. Um, and you know, maybe something has fallen on them and they're stuck and they can't get out. Down the other hallway, there's a big tray full of a bunch of, uh, you know, frozen fertilized eggs. Um, and you all, you know, you only have time to save one, right? Or at least maybe you think you only, you, maybe you, you're worried you, you might only have time to save one and you're wondering which one should I save first? Okay. Um, almost everyone has the intuition that you should save the five-year-old child rather than this tray full of fertilized eggs, right? Um, and so people often use this as kind of a, a pro-choice argument because they say, well, look, you know, if it was like one five-year-old child versus dozens of five-year-old children, you would save the dozens of five-year-old children, right? Because ordinarily we think, you know, it's a tragic, a tragic situation, but you've got to save more people, right? And doesn't that suggest that 
really, we think that these fertilized eggs are not people like us. We think that there's a more a difference in moral standing between the fertilized eggs and the five-year-old child. And doesn't that show that there's something mistaken in the pro-life person's position when they say that, uh, no, the, the fertilized egg has the same moral status as you or I or the five-year-old? Um, and uh, pro-life people will try to respond to that and they have kind of two options. One option is to reject the intuition. They could say, no, you actually should save the tray full of embryos. And you just don't realize that because, you know, they don't look like people yet or something like, you know, so your intuitions are not adequately responding to the case somehow. Um, or, and this is what most pro-life philosophers do in response. They can try to say, well, look, um, no, I, I agree. Obviously you should save the five-year-old, but um, you, you know, that it doesn't immediately follow that there's a difference in like fundamental moral status. So it might be that you should save the five-year-old over say two 90-year-olds. Um, but that wouldn't mean that like the 90-year-olds are not people. That would just mean, well, the child maybe, you know, the fact that they have their whole life ahead of them or the fact that they're so helpless, you know, there's some other reason that means you should save the kid over the two 90-year-olds maybe. Um, and uh, you might think similarly, um, okay, well, you know, the kid, suppose that the embryos and the kid are both persons with full moral status. Um, it might still be that, uh, well, the kid has relationships with other people, the kid has projects, hopes and dreams about the future that will be foiled by death. You know, the kid, if they're conscious, is probably really scared and it will be painful to burn to death. And that's not true of the embryos. Um, and so uh, those other things are why you should save the kid and uh, not a difference in fundamental moral status. So uh, the embryos are people too, but you should save the kid for these other reasons. And then they wanna say, even though the death of the embryos is much less bad, uh, it's still the case that you can't kill them because they're people. And so this is how you're supposed to get the pro-life position still. And pro-choice people who want to use this as a pro-choice argument will then say, okay, let's try to modify the case. Suppose, you know, the five-year-old uh, was, you know, an, an, a, a totally unloved kid and didn't have any good relationships with other people. Wouldn't you still save the five-year-old? Suppose that they were under anesthesia, so they weren't scared and they weren't in pain. Wouldn't you still save the five-year-old and so forth? And you try to modify the case, get rid of these other things so that the only thing that's relevant is a difference in moral status. And if you still have the intuition that you should save the kid, they think, ah, so that shows really, we do think that there's a fundamental kind of moral difference where the embryos have not yet gained full moral status. And of course, pro-life philosophers try to respond. And so that's that's sort of where the argument uh, as a, a pro-choice argument winds up. Okay, interesting. So it seems that there's like, again, like I guess this is reference to kind of the title of the, the paper, um, that abortion isn't kind of like the only issue here. Like there's a lot of different issues at hand, um, not just the question of abortion, but also the questions like moral standing, the question of uh, what it means to have a whole life ahead of you comparative to not having a whole life ahead of you, dreams, aspirations, all those things come into consideration here. And I guess like that's that's kind of like the, the, in the interesting part of this, to me at least, is that like, Again, I mentioned this earlier as well that there's so many different concepts coming together at one in, at one issue and trying to trying to justify one position or another position, um, which is really really interesting to, interesting to see. Um, so I guess we kind of did already talk about like what it means um, to like for abortion not to be the only issue, but what are the other issues at hand like when we're discussing discussing the debate? Is it just the moral standing versus? Um, like, I guess, life, uh, pro like the prolongation of life or how much time you have in life. Are there any other issues? Like, is there also consideration of maybe like class background or like background of the position of all those things? How, how does philosophy treat that? Yeah, yeah. There are issues about gender equality, about personal identity. When do I begin to exist? About what makes killing wrong in general, about what sorts of obligations you have to help other people, about what you can do to force other people to do things that they don't wanna do, et cetera. Um, in my paper, what it refers to is actually thinking about how to balance abortion against other political issues. So 
really what my paper is about is single issue pro-life voting. So I know people who are very, very pro-life and as a result, they feel like they always have to vote for the pro-life political candidate. Um, and you ask them what, you know, but doesn't say Donald Trump do all this other bad stuff. And, you know, and they say, well, maybe so, but abortion is just so bad. I have to prioritize it over everything else. And you say, why, why do you have to prioritize it? And one of the reasons they give is, well, it's, it's very big scale. So there are, you know, 800 and some thousand abortions every year in the US right now. Um, that number has gone down over time actually because of better access to birth control and that sort of stuff basically. But uh, there are 800 and some thousand uh, abortions every year in the US. And look, from the pro-life perspective, these are very serious wrongs. These are murder or equivalent to murder. And what could be more important than stopping 800,000 murders in our country every year, right? And so as a result, they say, they have to prioritize voting pro-life over everything else, even if it means a candidate who is not gonna combat climate change and is not gonna push for healthcare and is gonna uh, you know, try to restrict voting rights and all this sort of other stuff, right? Um, and so what my paper is, is saying is, okay, let's, let's grant that you're pro-life. Um, let's not argue about that. Should you, on the basis of this reasoning, think that you have to be a single issue voter? And what I argue in the paper is no, you shouldn't, because I say, look, when it comes to the embryo rescue case, um, most pro-life philosophers say, look, you should save the five-year-old, even though I think that, even though I am pro-life and think that the embryo has full moral status and you shouldn't kill it and stuff, you should still save the five-year-old because the death of the embryo is not nearly as bad as the death of the five-year-old. That's what most pro-life philosophers say. Okay, well, let's suppose we take them at their word and that's correct. Well, then it looks like in general, when you're making voting decisions, you should think, even if you think that abortion is wrongful killing, you should think, well, the death of these fetuses is not nearly as bad as the death of a born person. And so, you know, yeah, it's true. Maybe 800, there are 800,000 abortions and maybe only tens of thousands of people die of inadequate healthcare in the US. But if you think the, the deaths of born people tend to be a lot worse, just looking at the numbers doesn't tell you which one you should prioritize, right? You also need to think about the fact that the born people have desires about the future and relationships and they suffer and there are other people who suffer and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so what I argue is that the most popular pro-life response to the embryo rescue case actually undermines this argument for being a pro-life single issue voter. And so I say, even if you're pro-life, you shouldn't be a single issue voter on the basis of this kind of reasoning. You need to look at all these other things that you probably agree are morally relevant when you're trying to decide which issues you should prioritize. That definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, just on like, uh, like when I was like, when you're going through that comparison, I was like, oh, like it like really clicked in my mind. I was like, oh, that's a really good comparison and how, how that would work. Um, and I really think like, in general, I feel like a, like a public philosophy event or just to explain that concept could be really, really, really convincing to a lot of people. Because obviously like what I've seen and just kind of what I know about like philosophy in general and like the public is that they don't have, often they don't have like the time to read it, first of all, but they also don't have like maybe the education necessary to understand complex papers um, because it is very, very academic. academic. But, um, you know, I think like public philosophy events are, are really beneficial just to the public because they allow, um, them to understand things and so i do have a quick question to ask on on the face i guess of like communicating with others um how do conferences work um in the field of philosophy on the topic of abortion like do those get really heated do they uh like domain civil and then how do you like do you guys have like lawyers there or, like legal legal people who are trying to like or, or is it just philosophers at those conferences mm -hmm. So it, it depends. I mean, there are different conferences. Usually, I mean, most of the time there wouldn't be a conference specifically on some particular issue. It will instead be a conference on ethics where you have papers on a variety of different issues, say. Not, not always. Sometimes someone will hold a conference on a specific issue, and that might be actually where you're more likely to see interdisciplinary stuff, like bring in lawyers or doctors or whatever. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, there are definitely plenty of times when people give give papers um, on all sorts of contentious moral topics. And yeah, I would say the the professional norm is usually that you know you try to be civil and maybe in fact you really dislike the other person or you think what they're saying is terrible but like you know we as philosophers are still like what you're going to do is try to refute their argument or you know show that their position is wrong you know you're not just gonna insult them or something like that um maybe you know on social media it can be a little different but in in the, at the conference in the room when you're asking your question or whatever yeah people are usually usually pretty civil and they usually do try to focus on let's talk about the arguments not always but um probably more so than you know uh on twitter or whatever um definitely that makes sense and and i guess that's that's good i mean twitter Twitter talk is always funny though. <laughs> so like, I mean, I wouldn't want to get rid of that. Um, um, for audience members that may be interested in, you know, following your work and, and your future plans, I know you have this forthcoming paper about abortion, but could you tell us more about maybe what you're researching now and what mm -hmm. new topics that you're exploring and like kind of what's new in, in your, your, your job as like a philosopher and what you're doing? Yeah, well, so there's a response to my paper that's going to come out in, um, I think this Catholic bioethics journal um so i'm gonna write a response to the response to me are you that no i i'm still right uh uh what else so i'm i'm co-authoring a book uh with um kevin vallier who's a philosopher at bowling green um and uh the the book is called 50 puzzles paradoxes and thought experiments in philosophy politics and economics um, so it's, you know, a kind of a survey book that tries to talk about a bunch of different interesting problems and paradoxes and thought experiments that come up in the field of philosophy, politics and economics. Um, so um, anyone who's interested in that, that should be accessible for, you know, people without a big philosophy background or anything um, once that's out. Um, yeah, there are a couple other projects that I'm working on. I the semester I've been teaching, I, I took over two classes with like less than a week's notice. So I've just I've been trying to keep my head above water just with with teaching. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people can follow me on Twitter or probably following me on Twitter is the best. They could Facebook friend me too, I guess. And then you know, I post when I have stuff coming out and whatever, and so they can they can they can keep up with with what I've been doing. Awesome. That's that's definitely good to hear. Um, I love this response to response. Hopefully that chain goes to response to response to it. No, kidding. <laughs> that would be really, really funny, though. Um, to wrap up our, our episode, I want to ask maybe for uh, maybe a call to action for our younger audience. Um, a lot. I know a lot of my friends personally, and, and also me as well, um, are very, very riled up about the situation that's happening right now with Roe v. Wade, as well as just how, um, you know, recent events with like gun violence and how there's been just a lot of a lot of trauma and I guess like distress among America in, in America right so from discussions I've seen online it seems that like all of us have like a really really strong opinion right but what is something that maybe both women and men here I guess maybe if you want to target a younger audience or just in general um, what can we do to involve ourselves in, in the issue? Is it, you know, I've seen like change.org petitions having having some having been risen up, um, or is there anything else that we can do? Um, is it based? Is it state based? Is it like city based? Like what, what are things that we can maybe do that take into consideration where we live, uh, maybe our, our, our health and our safety as well, um, that we can do to get involved? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can try to get involved in, in activist organizations, you know, the different people, you know, sometimes there might be protests you can go to, maybe you can't do that, but there might be other things that they can, they can help you with. Those are the people who are kind of on the ground trying to make changes. And so they, they often know what, what's the most productive thing for people, for people to do. Um, it, it does, I mean, maybe this is self-serving, but learning about the philosophical discussions of these might be helpful because ultimately part of what you want to do is convince other people right convince other people to support your position so that they they vote for your views and etc um and uh you know it's helpful to kind of know what you're talking about and know what the arguments are and know how you might respond to things that they think and understand their position um so that that can be helpful um 
you know, if you have some money, you can make donations to different organizations. Um, you know, that's not something everybody can do. But um, yeah, I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of different, different things people might do. Even, you know, even just, I mean, people mock like Twitter activism and that sort of stuff. But I do think people, you know, pay attention to conversations on social media and learn things and that does affect their views. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes posting might actually make a difference. I mean, I don't know. Um, so yeah, you know, there are a lot of things that people can try to do. And of course, what's possible for them will depend on their resources and their situation and stuff, but. Definitely. And I think hopefully throughout all of this, what people do maintain is kind of at least some sense of optimism. There is like a lot of potential to, to you know, to not believe that there's a possibility for change, but yeah. you know, at least understanding that or trying at least or attempting uh, is so, so much value, super valuable, I think, at least um, in the, in the context where there is an issue where it can affect so many different people. Yeah. Um, and, and also just to be. So I, I mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, yeah, a lot of things in American politics are very demoralizing. Um, but you can at least say in a way that like time is on your side because our younger generations have much different, um, much different views than older generations on a lot of things. And like someday your generation will be in charge. So the way of things, right? Um, so you know, if, if, if you hang in there, hopefully, hopefully things won't be so destroyed by that time. You know, if you hang in there, eventually you guys will have more power comparatively. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, um, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. I mean, I, I think just, uh, I know because personally, like a lot of my friends have also been like, okay, well, this isn't going to do much, but I think like at least just hanging on a little bit, however thin yeah, that wire yeah, might, you know, thread might you've be. Gotta, you've got to hang on, you've got to build support. I mean, you know, think about talking about abortion, think about what people in the pro-life movement have done, you know, in 1973, um, uh, you know, the Supreme Court made this decision. Oh, it looked like they had just totally lost while well, they spent decades trying to get judges into positions and, you know, pressuring Republican politicians to become and well, I mean, ultimately it worked, right? Like, so they, I mean, they, they got what they wanted, right? So, you know, sometimes you can overcome very serious odds and it takes a long time. And what you have to do is stick with it and, and keep working at it. Um, so yeah, definitely, I think that's really great advice. So I just want to thank you so much for your time. I really learned a lot and I'm sure so many other people did, especially when it's such a crucial topic and relevant podcast topic, uh, considering the time and just the political mm -hmm. climate right now. So thank you so much for the discussion and, and your time today, Dr. Dr. Kermit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me.